Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Richard Schutz, a gaming consultant. Richard, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today, I'm joined by Richard Schutz, a gaming consultant. Richard, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here, and I also appreciate uh, being involved with the Business of Betting podcast. So I spent some time going through some of the things you've you've achieved and you've uh, worked, worked on throughout the years, and it's coming up on 50 years in the gaming business, which is quite the, uh, quite the feat, and you know we can talk about places like Bermuda, California, uh, Macau, Switzerland. There's plenty of different jurisdictions that pop up. You were the president and CEO of the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino, a PhD in economics from the University of Utah, uh, where you went into you know detail on Nevada and gaming there in the mid 40s through the mid 60s. So there's plenty of uh, plenty of areas to cover. Why don't you just take us back to day one year one week one of your time in the gambling industry i'm guessing there was probably very few places where where gaming was legal can you reminisce on what it was like back in the 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 earlier stages of your career when i was 17 years old i I lived i grew up in a very kind of poor california agricultural community and i went off to college and i went off to college at a place that seemed like a million miles away and, and it ended up being the University of Nevada, Reno. And I have no earthly idea how I made that decision. But I remember going to the University of Nevada. And one of the first things you did in Nevada as a college student, and as a 17-year-old, is you get a, a fake ID. And, and, and it, it was quite easy in Nevada at that time because they didn't even have pictures on the driver's licenses. And there was a whole market that furnished those at the university. And so at 17, I went down and, and, and visited a casino, and it was the most, it was the Nevada Club on Virginia Street. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. This incredible scene, and, and from a small town kid, this was just an eye-opening experience. And I think at that time, the die was cast, Jake, I, I, it, it, you know. Anyway, I stayed in, I went to, did my undergraduate and master's at the University of Nevada, in Reno, and, um, and and I needed money at that time. So when I turned 21, I started. I went to work for Bill Hera, who had a, a very nice casino in Reno. It was one of the nicer casinos in the state. It was, uh, and I, and I started dealing Keno, and ended up dealing blackjack and then dice. And and I would go to work at nine at night till five in the morning, and then during the day I was going to college. And so I was always shot. It seems. At that time, the the industry was very different. And when I went to work at nine at night, everybody in the building, the men had sports coats on and ties. They had slacks on. The women had dresses on. Everybody was dressed very, very nicely. And it was just a, a fascinating uh, in, environment. Um, and and so I, I got into to the the business in that way. I did that only to support my education. I was studying at school economics, and there was a professor there that's become quite famous. He's now, uh, he died in 2011, but his name was Bill Eatington, and he's the only academic ever admitted to the American Gaming Association Hall of Fame. And, And he and I started talking about different things. As a matter of fact, I started a a master's thesis at one time on card counting and the only problem then is you had to they created this artificial market in order to secure computer time and, and graduate students got to go up to the computer soon at 11 at night and, and it was hard to amass a sufficient number of computer hours in order to be able to do the work I did so, so, so that that ended during that time I left Nevada and went to the University of Utah uh, into their PhD program, 
and I studied economics and I wanted to be a college professor. I thought that that would be a, a, a cool thing to do. I came time to do a dissertation and I thought I uh, would explore a topic in gambling. And so I started looking at the evolution. I was studying regulatory economics and I thought I would look at what makes a regulatory agency grow? And so I started looking, that was the question I asked. And I started looking at the Nevada experience. And uh, so I went to Nevada and I was working in the library there and I was reading these oral histories that were in there. And I said, this one guy's very interesting. And, and he said, well, he's, he's, this gentleman's still alive. Would you like to meet him? And he was, he was dying at that time, but he was dying alone. And uh, he had been head of the, uh, Nevada Game Control Board from 60 to 66. And during that time, there was a plant by the FBI in the Nevada Game and Control Board. And so they kind of kept two sets of files. And so he was able to provide me with these files that were just fascinating. They were wiretaps and all kinds of different things that the FBI was working there and the Nevada Game and Control Board was picking up the trash and stuff. You didn't have shredders at that time and you could read uh, you know, you could read typewriter ribbons and different things, and it was just fascinating. And the FBI was bugging the hotel rooms and, and trying to really put a dent in gambling. And, and so I, you, you know, I worked on that project for some time. And I, and I want to correct a point you made. You said I have my PhD. I did not complete my dissertation, so so I'm what's known as ABD PhD, just just for clarity. Um, as, a, as and I taught for a few years. And then I just said, you know, I want to be in the gambling business. I, I was making more money as a dice dealer than I was teaching in college. So I thought I would head back to Nevada. So I was continuing to work on my dissertation and I went back dealing uh, at Harris. And that was interesting because then it had been purchased by Holiday Inns. Bill Harris died and it had been purchased by Holiday Inns and had gone into a corporate setting. And that was different than when Bill Harris ran it. Um, and then I moved over to the um, Ramada, and um, which was a hotel company that had casinos at that time. And I stayed there for a year, and then I ended up kind of taking a break. I went out to a place called Boomtown just to deal dice and become a ski bum, a Lake Tahoe, uh, although I ended up getting promoted there up to shift boss. And... Um, while I was there, I got uh, I wrote a letter to Mr. Wynn, Steve Wynn, and um, the next thing he he sent a plane for me, um, and and at this time, Jake, I had one suit and it did not fit. <laughs> um, I had you know when they said they're going to send a plane, I thought it was something like a <laughs> you know a Cessna or something. It was this big. Mr. Wynn's plane, the DC-3 or DC-9 at that time. And um, I flew down to Vegas. I was picked up in a limo, which was, that was the first time that ever happened. I was put in a suite. That was the first time I, that ever happened. And, um, and, I, and I visited with a bunch of different people there. And then I was sitting with them and they said, how much money is it going to take to get you down here? And, and, and I said, I thought what was a big number and in looking back on it, I, I can't believe that Mr. Wynn and Mr. Uh, Clyde Turner didn't fall off the chair laughing. It was such a ridiculously low number. But so two weeks later, I was living there and then I was flying to Atlantic City and I was flying in helicopters from Atlantic City to New York. And it just kind of changed my life. I was working in the finance department there. Now, there's a couple points there I want to talk about. One was working for Mr. Hera. I think Mr. Harrow is probably one of the most materially important and transitional figures in gaming history. And it, during the time, especially in Vegas, there were a lot of curious people running the casino business. And at this time, there was only gambling in one state in the United States, and that was Nevada. <clears throat> they were about to lose that right because the federal government was losing patience with them. And yet Mr. Harris' approach was he was very much a legitimate businessman. He was very fair to the employees. He introduced modern human resources and all kinds of stuff. And, and that was such a groundswell of change for the industry. It was just fascinating. And I'm always really thankful that I got to start, start with Mr. Harris. The other, the other thing I wanted to mention about Mr. Wynn, why he wanted to hire me was two things. One, he was fascinated 
because I had a fairly advanced education. I'd spent five and a half years in a PhD program, and I had, you can't help but develop some quantitative skills, which are of great value in the industry. Uh, and, and two, that I knew what a casino floor was about. I dealt dice, I dealt blackjack, I'd been a shift boss, I've been a boss, you know, I've done all those positions. <clears throat> Excuse me, and, and it's easy to find one or the other of those, but he was kind of fascinated that there was a person that had both those set of skills at a fairly young age at that time. And, and that was interesting. And I want to make a point about that is it's always been my opinion is the casino experience was just as important as the education from the academic vantage point. Um, I sometimes get frustrated when uh, academicians and others that deal with casino people don't find them as sharp or they seem to suggest that they're not very sophisticated. And this goes back many years, but it was all my ex always my experiences while they didn't articulate things in the same way an academically trained person would, they had models and they had interesting models and, the, <laughs> and they worked. You know, you just had to listen to them real careful to figure out what that model was. Anyway, I worked for Mr. Wind. Uh, the chief financial officer was then appointed by the Howard Hughes Corporation as a president of a casino. He asked me to come along. I did because I wanted to get out of finance and into marketing and he put me in marketing. And quite quickly, I got into um, not only marketing, but I got into casino operations and I became the executive vice president. Uh, and that was um, that was very cool. I also, with Mr. Wynn, got to experience, just as an aside, Atlantic City. And there was nothing like Atlantic City in the early days. We had Sinatra uh, as, as our entertainer and stuff. And it... It, when I was back there, it was a nine-firm market, and we had a 25% share. So it was just, it was gangbusters. And you've never seen casinos like that. You could barely walk through them. So tell me about how, broadly speaking, gaming fit into the, let's say, the American culture back then. You know, you're describing Nevada or even Atlantic City. You mentioned before about the attire that people might wear, and I guess that might suggest some of that. But from a more general point of view, for the average you know, 40-year-old who might attend a casino or, or or even more broad than that, how was it that it fit into the, the daily culture? Because now, if you think about it, it's, you know, Vegas is often described as Mecca, which is a pretty interesting uh, choice of words. And you've obviously got casinos everywhere you look um, and even online now. So it's probably a, a very different environment. But back then, certainly throughout the early parts of your career, take us into, I guess, the mindset of the average person and, and how gaming fit within that. Well, 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 there was a mystery and, and there was an excitement around this. You know, it was a rare product, you know, it, it, especially between Atlantic City and, and Nevada. There was the only two places you could gamble. So it took some effort to get there for the vast majority of people. There was some mystery around gambling. You know, my poor mother, I taught college for a few years and and um, and then I went into the casino business and became a casino executive. And. 20 years after I'd been an executive, I went and I was visiting my mother and she had a lot of her elderly friends there. They were, they were quite old. And one of them came up and she goes, oh, I understand, Richard, that you're a college professor. My mother could not bring it to tell her friend after 20 years that I was a casino executive because there was kind of that, that mob hint to it or there's something, you know, that was just inappropriate about it. But, but it was an, an interesting time, you know, I and mean, the, the casinos in Atlantic City were extraordinarily busy um, during that time. And, and Vegas was booming, too, you know, um, and that was with kind of the markets for that, for that time. I'm thinking one part Great Gatsby, one part the famous movie Casino, and then maybe some other more sensible components as the final part. But overall, it does sound like the the mystique aspect of it, um, maybe the, the color, the explosion of excitement and, and what you see in, in a lot of the movies that look back at that era is probably pretty accurate. I agree. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. The, the other the point of that, and I think that that, I, that was the first time I had the opportunity to work for Mr. Wynn. I worked for him later, uh, right before he sold his company as a personal consultant. But he was the other transformative person, and I just think I was really blessed to be able to see um, someone of that incredible talent, because up to that point in time in Vegas, uh, the casinos were 
a box of slots, so to speak. You know, they, they weren't overly creative, and he created the um, that whole vision of the integrated resort, which is now the product. And he, he was just a complete visionary, and, and that was him. He invented, he reinvented the industry. Tell tell me about the Stardust and your time there. Obviously, those in the sports world who who bet or have you know been involved in uh, in the betting space will understand the significance of the Stardust line and, and how that essentially got the ball rolling when it came to a lot of the sports betting that was going on. Do you remember much from that period of time? Obviously, you oversaw uh, the entire operation, but what things stand out from, from that part of it when it comes to sports betting? Well, when I, went, when I left Mr. Wynn, I went to the Frontier, which was a Howard Hughes property, and we put in a sports book there. I, I, you know, I knew about sports betting in Nevada from maybe making an occasional bet. You know, I, I wasn't you know, on a football game or the Super Bowl or some such thing. But in the Frontier, we, I was running the casino and the marketing for that facility, and we put in a book. And that's an interesting way to learn the book in business. You know, we had Lenny Del Genio, who, is our, uh, who used to do the Academy Awards as a novelty thing. Uh, and he had been our keynote guy, and, and he and, and I was a little bit concerned if, if he had the horsepower that we needed. So I also was joined by, had, I hired a guy by the name of Sonny Reasoner, who had been in the Hole in the Wall gang, uh, Hole in the Wall book, which had been a funny book at both the Castaways, uh, at the Castaways and the Silver Slipper. And, and so, so that's how I got involved in the booking business, you know, trying to figure all that out, the technology. And we had satellites to bring in the games that were bigger than your car, you know, on the roof of our <laughs> building and, and trying to transmit it all to these TVs and how the CBS system worked and, and the betting systems work. And then that property sold. And so I was picked up by the Stardust. The Stardust was an interesting case. The Stardust had been run by people that allegedly had mock connections. Uh, whether that was true or not, I don't know. A good joint, and one should understand that they should run a good joint because the mob had been running gambling for a long time. They were very, very good at what they did. Um, they were bad accountants. Uh, they, they had a problem with that piece of, of the equation, but they were very good. When I was there, Scott Shetler was running the book, and I knew that was um, that was a big deal. We had a, I, I mean, it was just overwhelming. We had 11, at that time, you couldn't have a phone that could see the boards because of the transmission of gaming lines and whatnot. We had 11 pay phones outside the door, right on the, where the book was. And those, I was told, 11 pay phones were the highest revenue generating pay phones in the United States. We made the line at the Stardust, that's where it started. Uh, and, and it's important to understand is, is I loved that book. I liked Scott. Scott was a management challenge. Um, Scott would not respect someone just because they were an executive vice president or some such thing. It took a while for him. <laughs> but, but I found him to be very good at what he did. We booked a lot of money. And, and we took a lot of action, and, and, and clearly we were the biggest store in town. Um, and it's also important to understand it was a casino book. You know, it wasn't a standalone book, or it wasn't, you, you know, that's not all we did. And that influenced my involvement with it a lot um, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. Plus, I just enjoyed being down there. Plus, there were times where... I had to make the decision with regards to risk at times as to how much financial risk I was going to subject the store to. That's not a role that you want to put Scott into, you know, necessarily, because, you know, some of the times we would get some serious money on events and whatnot, and I would have to, you know, make those decisions. And one of the things that fascinates me now, Jake, is it's like the book is treated like this separate thing. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's even managed by a separate entity, you know, on a lease agreement or some type of partnership agreement. And that's got to be a little weird because at the Stardust, 
people roam from vertical to vertical. They might be shooting dice, you know, and then they're going to run over and make a lay down at the book. And then they're going to come back and they may play blackjack and, and, and things of that sort. And so it was all just one big scene. But we had a lot of a lot of activity at the book. Um, we had a group of people there that I thought were very talented. I really learned the business there, you know, and, and I just had this incredible staff. You know, we used to. There's, you know, one of the areas that's a, an important discussion area, and I, I just find it's being treated weird in the United States now, is the issue of integrity. Our people had been behind those counters for like 10 years. And sometimes when they came to me, or when they came, when Scott and those guys would call me, and they'd say, something's not right here. And, and, you know, that's about all it took for to get me involved. I didn't want to start questioning or what. I mean, I wanted to find out the details as best I could. But we would do things like call gaming control. And gaming control was only of limited help if you thought something was going down wrong in the book. I mean, if you needed them to help on a customer dispute, you had to get them. But so many scandals, if you will, kind of can be coming from an out, out of state. You know, it could be a game in California, something's happening there. And the gaming control is very limited. So we would do, we would work with the FBI and, and, and the FBI is a valuable partner in the integrity issue. And no one seems to be talking about that now. But the FBI is a valuable partner because they may already be looking at that <laughs> where, where you're looking, you, you know, something's going wrong here. And, and you know, the FBI has the ability to do wiretaps and, and, and maybe looking at things. The FBI gets triggered by things like money flows and whatnot. So they may really be in and you just give them another piece of it. As a matter of fact, a lot of gambling arrest anymore, illegal gambling arrest or what you call derivative arrest. They didn't go after the bookie per se, but they, there was something behind it, like they were trafficking and like anti-money laundering violating money laundering provisions or something like that. Um, but going back to the point about the people is they just had a sense about it. And, and it's a sense that came from standing behind, taking bets, watching numbers move year after year after year. And I really came to respect that as being terribly important in managing and running a book, especially at the levels of betting that we did, you know. Take us back to a Super Bowl Sunday or a AFC NFC Championship weekend or big college football weekend, especially when it comes to the book and, and even some risk decisions. How would some of those conversations go? What was the the atmosphere like? Are people charging to the counter to put down, you know, hundred dollar bets, thousand dollar bets? What are we talking in terms of zeros as we get up to those higher amounts? Well, it depended on the on, on the person. We, we would we would take briefcases <laughs> at times, you know, I mean, it, it kind of depended on the, on the person. Um, you know, we had some, some very good players and big players. And, and sometimes we may have a bet coming in from the, a guy that's a dice player with us typically that that's, you know, wins or loses a hundred thousand a trip. Well, I'm going to let him have basically whatever he wants, <laughs> you, you, you know, to, to a degree, because I was not intimidated by one of my good customers that was very good at, I mean, enjoyed playing dice, that he may win at the book and have a bunch of cash in his pocket. Because when you run a casino, you like people that think they're lucky that have cash in their pocket. It's just a real nice thing to have in, as a casino operator. So, so that was some of it. Plus, just everybody came to us. We, you know, we didn't. They got into this thing in some of the corporate books in Las Vegas is booking an extension and a guy might be in line and, and he'd say, okay, I want 15,000 on something. And they go, well, we, we'll give you the 5,000 at this and we'll give you the 5,000 at this number. And we'll get, I mean, I mean it's, it's just humiliating. We had a code. We, 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 you know, we took big bets, you know, 20, 30 grand oftentimes, you know, and, and larger from, from people we and especially depending on it was in the cycle of the game and whatnot. Um, but we, yeah, we had some big extensions sometimes. I remember a Super Bowl, 
we ended up, I think it was San Francisco or in Cincinnati. I can't remember the two teams, but we had a live seven or a live. Yeah, we had a live seven, either a live four or a live seven. I can't remember the, the details of it now, but it was it was on the number, <laughs> you, you know, that was going to cost us about a $4 million loss. And that was just on the game straight up. We would have picked up a lot from parlays and props and stuff like that. But on the straight up, we, we had about $4 million expend, uh, exposure for a while with about seven minutes left in the game. And and Bill Boyd and the president of the Stardust were in the in the showroom and they were watching the game and on this big screen with all our customers and I'd go in to see how they were doing and I was going out on the casino floor because you have all your high rollers in and the, the casino is just jammed eggs and it was going how's everything going on the book and I said oh everything's great <laughs> you know and I knew I had this exposure which was just going to be devastating. And boy, when that game got off, I think it was a four, I forget the number, but when it got off that number, it was like, hallelujah, we're going to have a great tonight, you know, but yeah, you, you know, but we held low and we knowingly held low because one, we wanted to drive a lot of traffic into that building. And we also found out that again, when you run a casino, it's kind of cool with a lot of people coming into your building with a lot of money in their pockets. And and, and it, it, if they win, oftentimes it's just a loan. You know, you don't see a guy that beats you on a book that says, okay, now I'm gonna put this into a 401k or I'm gonna put it in my my kid's college education and, 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 and I'm done, you know? They seem to keep the habit and, and they like going to a place where there's not going to be a lot of surprises. You know, the rules are the same today as yesterday. We we dealt the faces, we recognized faces, and, you know, we took the extensions. You know, I, I don't think you see a lot of that today. I, I think there's been a tendency in the casino business to break everything into an individual profit and loss center. And and we looked at our book somewhat differently than that. We, we just looked at it as a um, an incredible source of energy, a con- incredible generator of cash transactions in the casino and a lot of physical traffic. So can you fast forward then to PASPA and when it fell a couple of years ago now, and I guess you would have had a lot of conversations with a lot of the people you've dealt with over the years in a lot of different areas of the business, but just at that moment, was everyone extremely positive? Because obviously on the casino and the general gaming side, sports is still a tiny piece overall in in many instances was it something that people were really excited about and thought that it could drive like you're describing there a lot more excitement energy large cash transactions generally in the in the on the property let's say or whatever it might be is that was that ultimately going to be something that everyone was was happy with or were there some different sentiments across the industry when that happened in 2018 I, th- I think most of the energy at that point in time was back on the East Coast, mainly centered on Atlantic City. You know, I think those guys felt responsible for that. They clearly needed help because going through the Great Recession and especially with the introduction of casino gambling in Pennsylvania, the Atlantic market had been basically devastated. You know, it just it, it lost its luster. Um, the Atlantic City model was a model that was based on the notion of let's put the casinos where the people aren't. And and that worked when there weren't any other casinos back there. People would get on the, you know, the Atlantic City Expressway and drive from Philadelphia for an hour and a half or, or whatever, depending on the traffic on a Saturday night and go down there and, and whatnot. But all of a sudden, when you've got casinos in Pennsylvania and New York and places like that, why go to Atlantic City? And that devastated us. So I think, one, their introduction of, of, of uh, eye gaming and then sports betting was seen as a as a very big deal you know i don't think you know i don't know that nevada saw it i don't think anybody anticipated that it was going to spread as quickly as it did you know it's just that's just amazed me so when you when you think about it today how has that evolution been because obviously you've been in the gaming industry a long time you've seen it evolve from back in the earliest days where we're just talking about nevada to to more broadly across the country and even internationally and your experience in in international jurisdictions from a u.s sports perspective since 2018 have you seen many positive things or are there some areas that stick out as to 
you know, head scratches for you? Or what are your general thoughts on how things have, have changed over the last 24 months, specifically with the sports side? Well, I've been amazed at the pace. I, you know, I did about maybe it was a year, year and a half ago, and I did an article called 90 Day Wonders. And, and it was just fascinated by all the different people running around that were sports betting experts, you know, and, and, and I didn't buy it, you know, and, and, but, but it just started exploding. Um, I felt concerned about it because, first of all, your regulators don't know much about sports betting. The only place it had it existed in the United States, basically, was in Nevada. Nevada is a small state. Um, and so when you're launching state after state after state, that causes me concern, some concerns. And one of the things that I want to keep an eye out on is you want to create sustainable industries. Each state seems to have its own opinion about things, how to do things. You know, I mean, you can go from Tennessee to New Jersey to Pennsylvania and, and, and Nevada, and they all have kind of different ways of doing things. And, and I don't know if they know what they're doing. I think if you see a lot of the complaints, be it with um, Rufus's problem with the, um, the, the contest in Atlantic City or the Bet MGM issue of recent and, and some of the different things, it sometimes takes the regulators a long time to kind of figure things out, you know. And, and I mean, the European guys argue, well, that's a palpable error. And, and, and that's something that I don't think should even be imported into the United States. You know, I think that the whole notion of palpable error is it's asymmetric warfare in the sense that it gives the operator an advantage over the player because the player may not even know there's an error. I think it can lead to shoddy results. And I happen to like, and, and look, I know in a book you make mistakes. <laughs> you know, with lines and you make mistakes on lockouts and things like that, they happen. And I get that because I was in the business for so many years and saw those happen and had tried to fix them. But, um, you know, I just don't think that's really being handled well. When I looked at the the situation on the past posting, it seemed like there, there was more to it than just a past posting mistake. It looked to me like there was a risk management mistake. It looked like there were some issues that could have been addressed where the, <laughs> the kiosk should have been talking to somebody, you know. And um, and I, I like the, in New Jersey, what the rule is, is you can't unequivocally universe or unilaterally uh, say a bet's not a bet, you have to go through them. And I like that because then you've got human intervention and you've got reasonable people. And Nevada has essentially the same thing. They have a provision where it's a $500, um, any dispute over $500 can be, that they have the opportunity to look into it. And, and so that gets human beings involved in those decisions. And I think gets better judgment rather than just a book being able to say, well, we made a mistake and, and, and this doesn't count. You know, it's like a check hike or, or a mulligan or, or something like that. So tell me, tell me your thoughts on the U.S. market generally, let's say, from a regulatory point of view. Given your experience, your history in the industry especially, I'm very curious to hear what you would say when we're going to have far more states legalize coming here soon, whether it's places like even if you take away the, the Floridas and Californias of the world, there's still going to be, you know, Missouri and Minnesota and Kansas and Kentucky and Massachusetts and Connecticut all looking at sports betting into the future. So if the problem of inexperienced regulators exists today, that's going to extrapolate out into those states, I would imagine. It's a very unenviable task to be a gaming regulator when you're tasked with existing gaming and then they just throw sports on the plate given it has its unique uh, aspects what do you foresee coming and are there any ways to sensibly deal with the need for regulatory oversight and just the the inexperience that exists given the nature of, of gaming in the country? Well, I've always been critical of, of regulators not understanding a lot. And this goes back to the fact that in any industry, they they if you were going to regulate bridge building, you would go find some old bridge builders to <laughs> regulate them. 
if you're going to go in for surgery and you want to know who's regulating that hospital and writing the internal control processes for that surgery, you'd hope it was a doctor. Whereas because of the mob influence, they didn't want to have anybody involved in regulation that was related to the industry. It's kind of like that story I told you my mother couldn't admit that I was a casino executive to her friends. And, and so you get people that have no background. When I was put on the commission, in the, and, and, and I, I was regulated for 30 years, and in being regulated, I understood what they knew and what they didn't know. You know, I have that unique perspective. I also had applied for over 100 gaming licenses, and in, in, in I think it was up to 140 different jurisdictions. So I had a good insight as to how different jurisdictions handled things and who did it right and who did it wrong. Now, as an operator, you're careful about bad wrapping regulators, but then I became a regulator, and I became a regulator not only in California as a commissioner, but also in Bermuda as the executive director of that. And, and I felt more legitimate when I can use the pronoun we to talk about the problems. But regulators are enormously thin-skinned to suggest that there's ever any problems. I mean, in a minor things, and I'm a little off point here, Jake, for a second, but one of the things, I studied market structures as an economist, you know, when you have a monopoly, you have certain behaviors that are pretty typical. They're things like they're slow to innovate technology. They have poor service levels and they have higher prices. That's a monopoly. That's your cable company sometimes and, and these other monopolies. Um, but a regulatory agency is a monopoly, and you'll see they have that same thing. They, and as I mentioned, in California, I was the only one that had ever been involved in the whole regulatory apparatus with gambling. And, and so that's a problem. And you end up with very prescriptive regulation, which means they have checklists, you know. And I always make the joke is they can walk into a building and they see that there's not an 800 number for the problem gambling line on the ATM machine, and so they write it up. Now, there can be a huge scandal going on, but because they don't understand the intricacies of a casino operation, they'd never be able to pick it up. So that's one of my complaints. Regulators are not too experienced. They're being told how to write these bills by lobbyists, by stealing from someone else's. And the model in the United States with states' rights is generally you copy someone else's regulations. But then, they're two separate sets of regulation and be through the rulemaking process and the amendment process, they begin to diverge from each other. It's hard to compare financial returns because they have different ways of doing numbers now. And, and I just think, I just don't think they, they understand. They're, they're not building a sustainable system. For instance, I think there's eight states that have legalized that have had absolutely no provision for problem gambling within the context of the bill, no funding mechanism or anything like that. You know, it's just not mentioned. And uh, and I am on the advisory board for the National Council of Problem Gambling, and, and, and so uh, I have a little bit of bias there. But I mean, if you're selling a product that can damage some admittedly small percentage of your market, you don't wanna do that as an operator. That's not a good thing. And if you don't believe that's not a good thing, go across the pond and, and roll back the film for the last five years in England, you know. I mean, I mean it's, they've just gotten hammered there by being inattentive to problem gambling. And, and now they're trying to solve that problem by throwing cash at it by the bushel basket. And, and they don't know if they're throwing it to the right place or the wrong place. They just want it to go away. And that's a problem that the U.S. is walking into. I, I think that's a huge problem. Um, I think we better make sure we have good integrity systems here, and and um, and and I'm not sure that's happening. Um, and that can, you know, things can that can damage your industry. Um, I'm somewhat disappointed in the absolute absence of the industry to try and work to incorporate women within it and, and, and that's not a good look and that's you, you, you know you're building an industry and there's three ways you can do that with respect to regulation 
you can wait and screw up and the government's going to come in and put the hammer down, you, you know, be it as some of the things that are happening in the UK. Or you can self-regulate where you form groups and, and, and you behave in ways that you learn the lessons of history. And, and then the last thing is running towards regulation where running for regulation is what the Fertitas did with, with their mixed martial arts business. When they bought that business, uh, mixed martial arts was legal in one state. And what they did is they did a lot of study and they took that study to the different states and they said, look, this is the reality of our industry and this is the best way. And we, this is how we think you should regulate it for a good sustainable industry. And I think it's legal now in 49 or 50 states. You've got those options, and the option that they seem to be picking is we'll worry about that later. And I think that's terribly dangerous, terribly dangerous. It's like in the, in the old days in the casino business, they would have these glass uh, cupboards, and, and they would put a customer in those cupboards, and they had all these $1 bills and $50 bills and $10 bills, and they would turn on this fan, and this money would go circling around in this in this thing that was like an upright casket and the, and the poor individual would be in the middle of that grabbing bills. It's kind of what the expansion of, uh, of betting seems to be right now, you know, to me. There's certainly a, an argument there that things are going to pop up like problem gambling, you know, here soon. Uh, even, you know, on the advertising side, we saw what happened in, uh, you know, four or five, six years ago with respect to daily fantasy and some of the backlash there. Um, and uh, one area I wanted to ask you about, which fits into some of this, is just the the dichotomy of retail versus online. And you've obviously worked over the decades, you know, heavily focused on the retail side. And as online proliferates more now, do you have any thoughts as to the best way to to connect the two? Obviously, on the sports side, the the sports betting operators need to be tethered to a land based operation, whether it's racetrack, casinos, etc. In almost every state. Is that something that you think is, is going to continue where there is going to be a link? Or do you see a, a future where we, we look at somewhere like Tennessee and we have uh, gambling you know, from the cloud, let's say, where there is no tethered environment to the land base? And have you thought about what impact that might have overall? Well, I, I, again, most of the decisions as to whether you need to be tethered to a casino or whether you can be tethered to a casino and a casino can have fire skins or whether it's a monopoly that's granted to the lottery and, and all that, those are political decisions. You know, those are not economically based decisions. The best rollout for consumers is a market in which you can have people enter. And, and, and that doesn't mean they just enter, <laughs> you know, at a whim. They, I'm in the business although that is the market offshore to a degree or can be. Um, but I mean, you have to, you know, pass through a suitability and uh, investigation and you have to go through, you have to have your internal controls thing. But, but the more participants, the better you are in, in markets. That's what's going to be best for the people. And, 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 and I guess that's one of my thoughts on that. I'm not one for constrained market structures. Um, two, the delivery of a gambling product over the internet offers up concerns in my opinion. And, and, and let me explain to you why, Jake. 20 years ago, I made the decision to quit drinking, okay? Um, I never had a DUI or I never had a job issue, but I, but I had a lot of stupid issues, and, and, it, and it just became something that I just didn't want to wake up anymore and think, damn it, I did it again, you know, I was insensitive to someone, or I was an ass, so I made the decision to, to quit drinking, and, and I didn't make that decision and, and keep a bottle of booze in, in my glove, delivering something on a phone it's not like, and, and that's your gambling device. It's not as if you can say, well, I'm not going to have a phone here for the next six months until I can break free of this, uh, of this issue, um, because the phone's a necessity in life today. And then the ability of that phone to encourage betting and what that phone can learn about you. You know, when your teams are coming up or something you bet before, they're going to send you a notification or alert. And, they, and it really speeds up. I mean, back when I we were booking sports, 
<laughs> you know, you had the early game Sunday, you had the late game Sunday, and, and, and you know, then all of a sudden someone says, let's bet halves. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you try and get more turns on the money and, and increase the frequency of betting. That's what killed horse racing. You, you can't wait 20 or 30 minutes for every bet. But um, the, um, you know, the ability to, with in play and all that kind of stuff, to really increase the frequency and then to t reach out and touch that customer with an understanding of who he likes to bet on and stuff is a little dangerous. So I'd like to see that those folks are doing their most to make sure that there are controls on those systems with regards to exclusion and, and people can set limits and, and things of that sort, because the industry's not gonna be benefiting if we start busting out a bunch of people. It's just not, you, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I totally yeah. agree. And I think that's part of the challenge with the state-by-state -state US framework is that it's not uniform it's not necessarily uh, identical across the board in, in areas that you would want it to be identical. And that leaves open gaps and holes. And I hope we don't see many of them come to the surface or come to fruition. But I think there's a chance that in certain areas that that's the case. I just think there's warning lights out there on a whole bunch of things like that. I, you know, I saw where, and I won't mention their name, but, but you know, they're going to launch this free-to-play thing, which is in-play betting, you know, on sports, and, and you can be 13 and do that. Uh, you know, that, for some reason, is that where we want to go? Do we want to teach 13-year-olds what in-play betting's about? You know, it, it, it's, and, and I'm not saying that you should make that illegal. I just, I'd like to see more restraint, <laughs> you know, but it, they're going in both hands now, you know, they're just trying to get get it everywhere they can and it's just i probably sounded like an old man and in some ways i am but you, you know it's um slow and steady wins the day sometimes and i would just like to see all these states that are leaping into this maybe creating problems um that are going to not be good for anybody down the road you know i'd like to see more industry discipline which is always hard and i'd like to see the legislators being a little bit more mature and understanding that they need to be able to, one, come up with a good plan, not in a hurry, and, and two, to be able to assemble a regulatory team that is sufficiently well-trained and educated that they can keep an eye on this stuff. Tell me what you've learned from you know your career and some wisdom you might be able to share, but also from, from others. You talked about Bill Harrer and Steve Wynn and these types of industry moguls. Tell me a few of the things that stand out over the the last four or five decades uh, that that hold or have held those people in in good stead, and and things that others might glean some wisdom from. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of people have cast dispersion on the industry with respect to some of its practices and whatnot, especially in the old days. I have found some of the most honorable people in the world in this industry. You know, I mean to work with Scott Shetler at the Stardust, you know, I mean, that was just, I mean, <laughs> he's dead now, so I guess I can talk about it. Stewie Younger used to come in there right before we locked out on baseball games with this pile of $100 bills and throwing money everywhere and screaming numbers and making mistakes. And, and I mean, it was just, it was always crazy. Um, but we, you just meet some real honorable people. Um, I think that's one of the one of the things you have some extraordinarily smart people. I mean, Bill Hare, I thought as as a visionary, Mr. Wynn, uh, and, and I understand everybody has their issues, and and he's paid his price, but he was a visionary in the industry, and and I think there needs to be a little bit of respect for those guys that that to keep this thing going in a way that where it's not going to self destruct. You know, you can't eat your population alive. You know, you you have to. You have to create sustainable models, and I don't hear that discussion ever. <laughs> you know, right. I just don't hear that discussion ever. You know, and and I, you know, I mean, and on a personal level, I've been writing a lot more about women. You know, and and part of that's been I've been stuck in the deep south on a project for about the last two years, and I've been traveling the civil rights trail, and and I, and I guess I kind of got civil rights. A little bit more than I ever did before and I think that the women 
in our industry have a legitimate beef. You, you know, I don't think they're, I think they're being discriminated against. And I think the industry should work to, to rectify that. I just published an article today that suggests that the regulators should pay, uh, publish uh, statistics on by job classification, the difference in the, both the, the physical numbers and the pay rates of men and women, you, you know, because sometimes, as, as uh, Peter Jepper said, you know, the, you, you can't approve something until you can measure it, you, you know. So I just see some of these social and cultural issues of the industry need to be addressed, and they're not being. Um, so along, yeah, along those lines, tell me your thoughts then on, and maybe we can make this the final question, someone looking to enter the gaming space or the gaming business, and you've obviously looked at it from a academic point of view, operational and an executive point of view, as well as a regulatory point of view, even gaming consultant now. So as many angles as, as there possibly is, what advice would you have for those looking to, to enter the, the space or the business, whether it is a, a female or, or otherwise, that maybe there's a there's an area now that is, is critical and will be critical over the next decade that they might want to consider and, and look at in more detail? You know, governments put more attention into their hiring decisions than do, at least with respect to um, uh, making sure that they have a, an appropriate level of diversity. And so a good entry point for a lot of people that may feel that they're being discriminated against is the regulatory side. I, I also believe that learn the business, you, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about Mr. Wynn was fascinated both that I had the quantitative educational side, but I had floor experience. I've used the floor experience side as much in my career as I've used the other. You, you know, it's just important to understand the business you're in. And, and, and so, you, you know, again, we get, we've got all these 90 day wonders running about I would learn the business and not be, you know, saying I want to run a company in the next 19 weeks or something, but, but to, to learn the business. And if I'm building a, a company, the most important decisions are going to be those decisions that, that should be made in building a company. And it's those things about your mission statement and your vision statement and who do you want to be. Are you just going to write in that we want to operate with the highest levels of character, honesty, integrity, or are you going to mean that? And it's going to be true in every action. So they're really issues of leadership. And, and, and I just think you need to, again, focus on making this a sustainable industry. You know, don't let the flash of the pan guys come in here and wreck it for you, you know, and, and that takes discipline by the regulators, that takes discipline by the legislatures, and that takes discipline on the part of the casino operators, I mean, the, the gaming operators. Indeed. I, I wish we had another two, three, four hours, Richard. It's been great chatting, obviously, trying to fit in uh, a career like yours into less than an hour is impossible, so hopefully we can do this again sometime, chat some more in, in further detail. But it's great to hear your viewpoint from things across the decades. And thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jake. It's been a pleasure.